This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. Today, my guest is Jenny Yang, the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at World Relief. In that capacity, Jenny leads World Relief's advocacy mobilization efforts with churches and the media. And she also represents World Relief's advocacy efforts to the U.S. government. She has testified before Congress and helped organize congressional briefings, press conferences, and events. Jenny has worked over a decade in refugee protection, immigration policy, and human rights, and is chair of the Refugee Council USA. Jenny's resume is much longer than my summary, but I'm anxious to get into our conversation. So Jenny, thanks for joining me today. It's an honor to be with you and to have this conversation with you, a leader that I've admired for many, many years now. So I look forward to the conversation. Just a slight correction. So I'm not chair of Refugee Council USA. I am the co-chair of the Refugee Council USA Advocacy Committee. Uh, so just just to clarify that, because the chair is actually somebody else. That's great. Thanks for thanks for the clarification. You know, Jenny, we first met uh, when I was the CEO of World Vision. It seemed like we always ended up speaking at various conferences uh, at the same time, and we'd run each other, run into each other, uh, either coming to or leaving the podium. And particularly, we saw each other a lot uh, after the beginning of the Syrian refugee crisis back in 2011. You know, at those conferences, I was always so impressed when I listened to you, uh, impressed with your passion and your knowledge of the humanitarian challenges all around our world. And I want to start by asking you to talk just a little bit about the scope and scale of the refugee problem globally. And in particular, World Relief's work with refugees. Yeah, well, I just want to say that it was always a tag team effort because I think really at the height of the crisis several years ago, there was a lot of questions around how we can respond, even though the humanitarian um, stories and and just the, the, the levels of suffering we've seen really um, required us to do something about it. And so, um, and that need still continues because right now what we're facing is the world's worst displacement crisis since World War II, which means that there are now more individuals forcibly displaced than there were right after the war, uh, World War II. Um, and what it means also is that many of these individuals actually, um, more than half of them are uh, women and children, and the majority of them actually live in communities um, that are still developing, which means that these are individuals that are fleeing conflict and and persecution and going into areas that are not necessarily well resourced to k- take care of them. And yet, many of these countries are 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 doing that. A few years ago, I I went to Jordan, where approximately has 17 to 20 percent of their population is made up of refugees, and just the hospitality that I saw being extended from the Jordanians to Syrian refugees, um, from local communities all the way up to the government, really demonstrated a hospitality that I think sets an example for many other parts of the world that are also trying to receive large numbers of refugees. And I think I always say that we can talk about the fact that there are 80 million people forcibly displaced now. Um, and that of that number, 26 million of those are refugees, which means that these are individuals that are actually crossing an international border to find protection in another place. 
But behind each of these numbers represents an individual story, an individual with a name, with uh, personal, you know, family relationships and others that are really trying to find safety elsewhere. And I always um, prod us to imagine that we can be ourselves in the in those shoes as well. That oftentimes refugees never thought that they would be refugees, and yet they ended up in these situations. And I think there is a global responsibility for us, especially when we are seeing so many people displaced. Um, to respond with compassion and, and justice um, and really do the work of education because there is a lot of misinformation out there in terms of who these people actually are. You know, the comment you made uh, is probably surprising to a lot of our listeners that more than half of the refugees in the world are women and children. And if you add the elderly to that, women, children, and the elderly, I think the number gets up close to 75% of all the refugees, which is not the image that most people have in their mind when they think of international refugees. One of the things I wanna probe uh, with you is the politicization of the refugee issue. Uh, I think most people understand that President Trump dramatically slashed the number of refugees that the United States would allow into our country. And so uh, this has become a very controversial issue. So for the people listening today, why should the United States accept refugees and does it pose any danger to our country? Yeah, I think that's a great question to to, to respond to. I would say a, a couple of things to that question. The first is you have to look at our history and know that we have a historical tradition of welcoming refugees and whether it was our founding fathers who were fleeing persecution um, to, to find a safe haven in the United States um, to our successive um, commitments, even in the in right now, currently, when you look at um, back in the 1980s, when we accepted over 200,000 refugees um, in response to the the Vietnam War, and many of the individuals that you meet from Vietnam today are are um, are children of, of refugees who resettled or are refugees themselves, and you see that U.S. leadership to the refugee refugee crisis has really responded to political events happening around the world. And traditionally, the U.S. has been the world leader when it comes not only to refugee resettlement and allowing refugees to come to our shores, but actually providing humanitarian assistance overseas in response to political conflicts. And so there is this historical tradition to, to be able to do that. But I also feel like there is a moral obligation to do something in the, in, in the face of such drastic humanitarian challenges that many vulnerable people are facing around the world. Uh, when we look at what's happening in Syria, even when we look at what's happening in, in Venezuela, which many people predict now is going to become worse than this, the displacement crisis in Syria, um, we, we know that many of these people really don't have anywhere else to go. These are people who cannot go back home, who cannot locally integrate, and it really cannot find safety anywhere. And so if you have a young child and you're wanting this your kid to go to school, but there's no opportunity to do that. And your kid is working on the streets, basically trying to find a little bit of, you know, resources or income for your family. And that's a whole mm -hmm. child's life that is lost to, to conflict, which we have the ability to do something about. And so when we talk about uh, U.S. refugee settlement, it's not just about, you know, bringing everyone to our country. It's about doing the little that we can to provide a durable solution for individuals who actually have no other option to go anywhere else. And in fact, the UN uh, this past year has said that there's around 1.4 million people that are in need of resettlement. And if you look at our numbers in the past few years, we've resettled less, less than half of 1% of the entire world's refugees. So for the US to do our share of resettling a small number of refugees, 
um, while other countries are actually, you know, they have 15 to 20% of their population made up of refugees, means that we can do do our share. And I just want to emphasize that just a few years ago, when I, I did travel to Jordan, I did meet, you know, a young single mother who's who didn't know where her husband was because of the conflict and was taking care of her three small children in the side room of a house that she had found. And she was working out in jobs. Her children weren't really actually going to school. And so it makes me think you have this, this crux of vulnerability in this one family. You have a single mother, you have children that are nearly orphaned because they don't have a father anymore. They've become refugees when they're forcibly displaced, they're desperately poor, and you have vulnerability upon vulnerability just within this one situation of, of these four people. And imagine that compounded by the millions upon millions and the fact that the United States not only has done this and done this well, but the fact that we can continue to do that, I think, with the support of local churches and communities means, that, again, I think we have a moral obligation to respond in, in the face of such suffering. You know, um if I can remember my statistics well, I, I know one of the concerns that the American public has had traditionally about refugee resettlement is, well, first of all, they don't really understand who the refugees are. So there, there's some fear uh, of violence. And I believe since uh, 1980, when the modern refugee resettlement program began, we have admitted more than three and a half million refugees into our country from all over the world. And not one of them has committed a, an act of terror in our country, not one out of three and a half million. So in many ways, these are the safest possible people to admit to our country. They're heavily vetted, uh, their backgrounds are checked, and they are so grateful, they're so grateful that a country would welcome them uh, into, um, uh, into safety uh, that they feel like they owe the country a great debt. You know, you, you mentioned um, some of the stories of the woman that you met with her children. And I think the most powerful thing for me during the Syrian refugee crisis, I made trips to Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq, and I met with refugee families. And there's one particular young girl that I remember. Her name was Haya. She was 10 years old, and she had stayed up the night before to actually write her thoughts down in a letter because she knew she was meeting with somebody who had some influence or power from the United States, and she wanted to make her case. And I, I carry, I, I, I keep that letter. Uh, I'm going to keep it forever because I treasure it. I had it translated. It was in Arabic, and I had it translated into English. And I just want to read an excerpt from it because I think it's so important to put a human face on the people that we're labeling as refugees, you know, fleeing. Uh, whenever we label people, they lose their humanity. So. Here's what she said to me, a 10-year-old girl. She said, peace to you. I'm talking to you on behalf of the Syrian children. I'm calling on you, the people of the other world. Have you ever thought of the children of Syria, my country, Syria? Syria is in pain. Syria is bleeding. Syria is crying for her children. Her children were her candles, and they have faded out. Please, my name is Haya, and my father was killed. I loved my father so much and now I will never see him again. You know, those kinds of stories, uh, I can't imagine any American family, if they met this young girl, who would say, we shouldn't let her into our country. We shouldn't let her and her mother and her sister into our country because they're dangerous. I think our, our hearts would open and we would see the pain and suffering of these refugee families. And 
you know, that's what you do so well um, at World Relief. You make the case for uh, refugees. And um, uh, and I want to explore uh, one aspect of that leadership, uh, Jenny. As you know, I've written a, a new book on Christian leadership. And uh, but there's a unique aspect of leadership that uh, people like you have to master. Uh, and I call it soft power leadership. So normally when we think about leadership, we think about hard power leadership. In other words, a leader has a series of direct reports uh, or maybe they lead an organization. Everyone in that organization reports up to the leader. And so the leader has authority over those people and can give them uh, assignments and tasks to do and expect that they will be done because, you know, there's a there's a pecking order and a hierarchy and an organizational chart. And I call that hard power leadership. But one of the things I've learned about uh, leadership in the nonprofit sector, where I served for 20 years, is you have to motivate people over whom you have no power and no authority. So you have to use this soft power leadership. So what do I mean by that? So World Relief, uh, your organization, you have to motivate donors to give to your cause. You have to motivate church leaders uh, so that they'll partner with World Relief. You have to motivate members of Congress to pass legislation and promote policies that align with uh, your core values, your organization's core values. So all of that requires this soft power kind of leadership. Can, can you speak to some of the challenges uh, this poses? And how do you go about this in your senior vice president role of public affairs at World Relief? Well, I think um, there's a couple aspects of, of leadership around soft power that I think are really critical. Um, I think the first is that you always have to recognize um, that when you talk about especially humanitarian challenges, you're ultimately talking about about values, right? It's the values that you're bringing into the public square, the values that you have as a leader, as a, as a member of Congress, or even as a church leader, and what it means for those values to play out in public policy. And I think a lot of times when we remind people of these values, there's divergent views, not just on the values, but like the application of those values to a real policy lens. And so I think, as you were saying, it's the stories that are super compelling and very important when we have these conversations, because you know, as much as we can talk about numbers and statistics, it's these stories that change people's hearts. It's these stories that remind people that when we're talking about hard numbers, we're actually ultimately talking about people. Um, I remember uh, a few years ago, we had a press conference on Capitol Hill and um, a young woman who was undocumented in the U.S. Um, was there in the in D.C. To, to protest. And she was randomly in a Senate building, had no clue our press conference was happening, but it was a press conference announcing a letter. And we had a bunch of pastors speaking about the need to pass some kind of immigration reform. And she came in and she looked at that letter and she saw um, Beth Moore's name actually on that letter. And she started weeping because she said, I have read Beth Moore's Bible studies growing up and I never thought that she would use her voice to speak up for me. And she was just all, she was just emotional about the whole thing because she felt like it was mm -hmm. so, like it was speaking to her. And so in that moment, we knew that, you know, a lot of members of Congress were not necessarily agreeing with us, but we had the values of affirming the dignity of immigrants, of affirming the value of these immigrants in this national conversation. And I think the values based conversation is just really critical when we talk about um, any you know very challenging policy issue. And then secondly, to have stories involved 
um, to make people understand that individuals are impacted by some of these conversations. Um, but I think the other thing about, about soft power as well is that, you know, you never want to vilify someone who disagrees with you. You never want to count someone out just because they have a political difference than you. And I think the challenge in our country and, and maybe in many parts of the world is that we tend to write off people who are in a different political party. We tend to write off people who look different than us, who maybe have said things that are offensive to us. And I think in the spirit of unity and of, of promoting justice and flourishing for all, we actually have to engage the people with whom we disagree. And it's, and it's challenging because I think sometimes when we disagree with someone, we question their motivation. We say, well, you can't really care about this person if you know you voted for X, Y, and Z. And you have to say, no, actually, they probably do care about the poor. They just don't think the way to help the poor is by doing X, Y, and Z. And so I think always affirming the, the motivation for someone that you disagree with um, to understand where they're coming from and then to make sure that they have opportunities to um, to engage in, in, a, in a policy conversation is very, very important. And, you know, we can never write off people who disagree with us because I think, um, you know, it doesn't bring about um, change. It doesn't bring about a change of heart. And I think uh, whenever we talk about um, changing people's perspectives on people who maybe they think are terrorists or people that are going to harm them, it really requires um, um, us acknowledging that even their fears and concerns and actually addressing that and not not necessarily sweeping it under the rug. Uh, one of the things I've always believed is that the most important quality in a leader is their character. Um, and as a Christian, I'm convinced that God is much more concerned about our character as leaders than he is about our accomplishments as leaders. And character is made up of the values that a leader embraces. So um, you've been a leader in some difficult sectors. What are the leadership values that have been most important to you in your career? I think a couple of values come to mind and it's it's really been honed over, I think, many, many years. But although it's been consistent, I think um, ever since I, I really started working at Royal Relief, um, I think the first characteristic that comes to mind is humility. I think Whenever you work with someone who feels like they know everything or um, has all the answers, it really inhibits not only creativity, but but collaboration to either get the best programs forward or or um, um, or to serve the people in the best way possible. And so I think humility and acknowledging that all of us have a lot to learn from one another, humility to understand that everyone can contribute, that you don't have all the skills and gifts needed to run you know, everything well is is hugely important. And I think a part of that is humility allows people to be able to follow you. And humility offers not only a space at the table for um, for individuals to come with their gifts, um, but it also acknowledges, there's an acknowledgement there as a leader that you are, um, you know, you can be at fault or you can make mistakes and, and it's actually okay. Um, it gives you the ability to move on and actually grow from your failures instead of feeling like you have to do everything perfectly. So I think humility is, is a huge part of leadership um, and it creates the capacity within any organization or church to um, to be able to follow well. Um, and that's exactly, you know, what Jesus did when in his ministry and in his time here on earth as well. Um, the other thing I would, would talk about is encouragement. I think um, whenever you're trying to build a team to accomplish something, you really want to guard against cynicism. Um, and so a way to guard against cynicism is is to constantly encourage your team to believe maybe in the impossible to think that it's possible. And um, I remember I was hearing, um, I was actually in at Georgetown University because 
there was a panel discussion um, where Barack, President uh, Barack Obama and then some other panelists were talking about poverty in the United States. And they were talking about, you know, what is it going to take for faith communities and the government to work together to, to address poverty? And President Obama was saying, well, you know, one of the things that I need to constantly remind my staff about at the White House is really to guard against cynicism because he says, you know, I walk around the White House garden and we can talk about policy and we could talk about all these solutions. But in the end, I need to instill in my team a sense of, of, of hopefulness, the fact that um, and guard against cynicism. And he said, my chief job is, is to guard against cynicism. And I think mm-hmm. for many of us as leaders, it's it's to believe, to have instill in our team the belief that the impossible things are possible. Um, and that even though we see obstacles in the way, that to believe that we have the skills um, and the capacity and the resources to to overcome that, to deliver yeah. um, and serve serve people. I think so um, encouragement is is a second one. The last thing I would say- You know, um, if I just comment on that, you know, encouragement is, um, is, is so important. And, and you and I worked in this humanitarian field where the problems seem- overwhelming. I mean, you're dealing with genocide, human trafficking, refugees, famine, uh, you know, the the things that have plagued the human race for thousands of years, we're dealing with the oldest problems that face humanity and, and a great deal of human suffering. And it is so easy in the midst of that sea of suffering that uh, we tend to see every day, those of us that worked in that field, uh, it's so easy to become cynical and discouraged and, and, and I always used to, well, number one, you had to inspire your team, right? You have to inspire your team to believe that we can make a difference and uh, believe what's possible. And you have to live in what I call a glass half full side of uh, your work, that the glass is always going to be half empty and it's always going to be half full. And if you live in the empty side of the glass, all you do is you get discouraged about what you can't accomplish. But if you live in the glass full, half full side of the of the uh, equation, um, you can be celebrating the things you can accomplish and will accomplish and are accomplishing. And and when you when you have a long term mission that requires facing this every day, you've got to encourage the team to stay in the fight, right, to stay in the, the, the good cause and fight the good fight. And uh, so anyways, you, you were going to say there's one more value you wanted to talk. Yeah, about. Yeah. And just to, to elaborate on that a little bit more is um, I mean, I think when we look even at our because I work a lot in policy. And so there's always setbacks because, for example, we've been working to pass immigration reform for many, many years now. And the Senate passed a bill. The House didn't pass a bill. And we feel like there's hope around this. And a lot of times people ask me, like, how do you do this day to day in and day out? Because don't you get so hopeless? Because you've been working on this for over 10 years, 15 years. And so I always say you always have to have hope that we can achieve this. Like nothing is it's like running a marathon, not running a sprint. And so I think, you know, the belief that, OK, we can get more people on board, we can educate more people. All of that, as you were saying, it's it's required as we think about some of these significant humanitarian challenges that we have. Um the last um, uh, leadership principle I, I would talk about is is courage and courage. Um, oftentimes, I think people think about courage as a lack of fear, and I don't think it's not having any fear. I think courage is 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 acting despite your fear to take a step step in the right direction to do the right mm-hmm. thing. And a lot of times, I think um, when it comes to leadership. Uh, you need to have the courage to do the right thing and to do the unpopular thing. And a lot of times 
uh, leaders won't do the right thing or, or they'll sidestep from being clear, um, having a clarity around that because um, they're you know, succumbing to pressures of donors or of individuals or of you know, mainstream media or, or, or the common narrative. Um, but oftentimes I think doing the, the challenging thing and presenting even a character narrative um, in our work around people who are made in the image of God who happen to be poor or et cetera, et cetera, um, I think courage is required for good leadership. And I think, you know, a part of courage is having a clarity of conviction. It's the ability to have a clear voice of reason and of compassion that really cuts through everything else. Um, and I think a lot of times when we waffle on on what our convictions are or don't have the, the clarity around that, I think it could really muddle our voice and our, our public witness, especially for those of us who follow Jesus. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of what we've seen in the past several years has been leaders who are very clear about our values, our, about biblical principles, being able to persuade people of the need to commit to common goals around specific social issues that I think have been truly transformative. Um, and a lot of that has actually happened from those from the margins that are leading these conversations. So um, in the U.S., whether it's, you know, immigrants themselves saying, you know, we are people made in the image of God and we have our own rights and leading conversations around immigration. Um, or whether it's, you know, the woman that we serve, um, you know, in Rwanda, who's a recipient of some of our savings and loans groups, and she becoming like a business leader and, and sharing her story and having her own her own narrative. I think all of these are really important and, and, and acts of courage um, that are, are shaping some of our conversations. You know, courage and encouragement kind of go hand in hand. But hey, Jenny, I want to talk about another aspect of your leadership. Um, so, um, you know, you're an Asian American woman and you're traveling in circles of churches in America and in, in circles in Washington, D.C. Um, have you ever faced challenges related to your gender or your ethnicity in your leadership? I definitely have in, in different ways. Um, I think, you know, I've had subtle comments around, oh, she's, you know, so articulate as if they expected me not to be articulate or, um, you know, I've experienced one time I was at a, a conference, um, a Christian conference and we broke into um, subgroups and, um, you know, they were asking for note takers and, someone turned to me and said, Hey, can you take notes? And so I actually um, said, well, I actually think that someone should volunteer to take notes. And so my colleague next to me um, volunteered quickly and said, I'll, I'll take notes. No problem. He was, you know, and, um, and so, uh, you know, I was grateful for him to step in. And, and so I think I've definitely experienced um, a lot of that. And so, I mean, I, I recognize working at um, a Christian humanitarian organization and, and being at a lot of conferences and in churches that, that are predominantly white um, or predominantly male um, that for being an Asian American woman, I definitely have, I feel like a more of a burden and responsibility to represent my community. Well, um, and I say that because, um, because I know when I walk into that room that people oftentimes expect me to not be as articulate or to not have my story together and my facts straight um, because, you know, I'm Asian or I'm a woman. And so I have the high bar to meet to say, no, I am actually can do those things well. Yeah. Um, but I also know that if I do exceed the bar or, or meet the bar or exceed it, that it can open the door for, for um, other, you know, young women of, of color, Asian American women to all, also be offered opportunities to speak or, or to write or to lead organizations. And so um, I do carry that responsibility. And I, I would say, um, you know, my last 
kind of open instance of, of racism that I experienced was last year when I was actually at a Capitol Hill briefing and um, and a woman um, I was talking with a gentleman and these are actually all people, you know, Rich, but I won't say their names, um, but, he, uh, you know, she said um, she asked a gentleman next to me for hand sanitizer and, he's, and he kind of joked with her that he wanted to give it to her. And, uh, and she said, well, you're the one that's sitting next to the Asian. You're going to get the, you know, the virus from her. Wow. And, and the, this guy actually turned around and said, that was a racist comment. And she, after that, that briefing um, actually apologized to me. And um, so, you know, and it wasn't this, you know, uneducated woman, I mean, racism and ignorance, it knows no, it, it permeates every level of society, whether you're you're very well educated and, and wealthy or, or not. Um, and so I think, you know, whenever there's those instances, what always helps is allyship. It's, it's important as we're talking about courage and, and um, about courage is to not let those things slide. And, and, and especially like for my, my friend who spoke up and actually told her that it was racist that I wasn't alone when I, I experienced instances like that. And so I think for many of us, especially in this time and place we are in the United States of America and in other places where there's racial tensions, um, to us acknowledge these circumstances and to say that it's not okay and not brush it under the rug. And it can happen in a lot of ways. I think whether it's, um, you know, reading um, books by people of color, whether it's being educated by, by people who look different than us, and whether it's if we're leading an organization to systemically, programmatically through human resources and other other ways to to promote diversity and yeah. equity and inclusion, um, but even like in our personal lives, when when you hear um, someone being um, you know shamed or or intimidated or embarrassed, um, like we should speak up when those things happen um, to show solidarity and to make sure we demonstrate courage in that instance um, and not let racism continue uninhibited. So. Um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely yeah. been a part of my leadership. I mean, personally, it's 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 impacted me, um, and I do think being able to overcome and push and be anti-racist, um, it's it's happened in a variety of ways, and I think it's also something that we we should show um, responsibility for. You know, um, I think we've all been horrified um, by recent reports uh, of how Asian Americans have been uh, attacked, literally attacked physically, and even killed. Uh, by people in the United States that somehow blame them for the uh, coronavirus, uh, for COVID-19. And, you know, it's so ludicrous to think that, you know, an Asian American person that maybe has been living here for 50 years in this country, or maybe was born in this country, uh, you know, and this is their, their country of birth, had anything to do with what might have happened in Wuhan, China with a virus. You know, it's, it, it's such a horrible um, thing to that somebody would connect those two things and blame a racial group or an ethnic group for uh, something that they had nothing to do with or no knowledge of. It would be like, you know, blaming somebody who's an Irish American for, you know, something that happened in Ireland, you know, but they were born in America and they live here. And uh, it's just, it's really sad. And you're right. We have to speak up uh, about those things. And uh, we have to start realizing that diversity is, is a tremendous advantage uh, and gift of God, you know, to uh, to our organizations. And when we have more diverse voices and we have people from different backgrounds, we make better decisions and we kind of release uh, their God giftedness, you know, as leaders. Um, you know, I love to use the metaphor for leadership of a conductor and an orchestra. When you were talking about humility earlier, 
I thought, well, the conductor of the orchestra knows that she can't play the violin and she can't play the clarinet and she can't play the, the brass instruments, but she knows that the musicians out there have those gifts and skills. And her job as the conductor is to bring out the giftedness of the musicians and to coordinate their giftedness together to make uh, the musical score, to play the musical score. And so that's a great paradigm for leadership. Uh, when you talk about a leader thinking they have all the answers, well, imagine a, <laughs> an orchestra conductor trying to play all the instruments at once, you know, and trying to running over to the violin section and picking up the violin and r running over and picking up a trombone. It would be, you know, ludicrous. Um, but that's what a leader who doesn't have the humility to recognize the giftedness in their team and the people around them and the diversity, the importance of diversity in that team. That's what a leader looks like who, uh, who doesn't have that kind of understanding. I want to talk about another personal dimension of leadership, and that's uh, balance or work-life balance. Um, you know, people that don't have balance in their life uh, uh, are often headed for some kind of crisis, either professionally or personally, because I like to say if, you're, if your life is your work and your work is your life, um, you live in a very small world and you're probably headed for some kind of crisis. So, um, but achieving this work-life balance, uh, I think everybody wants to do that, uh, is, is difficult. And, and what are, what, how have you managed the challenges of work-life balance? I know you've got some little children at home and uh, they're probably scurrying around your, your house right now because uh, they're not in school and <laughs> you have to take care of them. So how do you manage that? Well, it's an interesting question to ask in the middle of a pandemic when you're right, when uh, the kids have, you know, come into my Zoom meetings and, um, you know, they enjoy that saying hello to everybody. <laughs> um, but I always I always think about work-life balance as, as seasons and and having seasons in your life where you, where, where you can be really busy or when maybe things are not so busy and you can spend more time um, with your kids um, in different ways. And so, I mean, I think the thing that I always try to instill in my kids is that they're on the journey with me and wherever I'm called to serve. And, and I say that because I think, um, you know, there are times when I've traveled where I haven't seen them, you know, my kids for a week, like when I've gone overseas and I come back and I, I always tell them that, well, you're with me because like, this is what I learned this is what I did. And I always ask my kids to pray for me. And I think there's a value in them feeling like they're a part of the journey that God has on, not just for me, but for my entire family. And I have to trust and believe that the things that God has called me to do in my, my own life will Im impact and, and my, my own family for the better. And, it, and it's for the benefit and the flourishing of my whole family that I'm faithful to the things that God has called me to do. And I struggle with it. I, I struggle with mom guilt. I, every time I'm away from my kids, um, sometimes I, I wonder, you know, is it the right thing? Did I make the right decision? And I remember once I was speaking at a missions conference and I was struggling because I think I missed my kids picture day and, um, and it was the second year in a row that I wasn't there. And um, just randomly a woman came up to me and she says, you know, I know that you have a couple of young kids at home at home. And I just want to tell you that the fact that you are here blessed us tremendously. And at, I know that you could be at home and that you, you know, you're probably struggling with that. But the fact that you are here was a blessing to us and God used you to bless us. And so just know that um, 
I, even as much as it's a challenge for you to be away from your kids, know that God is using you in a, in a powerful way. And it, it was the most helpful reminder for me to know that, um, you know, God is, is taking care of the things that maybe I feel like I'm, I'm not able to do well. And, um, and I do think, you know, when you look at my travel schedule before the pandemic and things, you know, I always try to, I, um, when there was opportunities, I would bring my kids with me, I would bring my parents with me and we would travel and sightsee on top of, um, you know, doing a speaking engagement or, or attending a conference. Um, and there is times when I have downtime where if I don't see my kid for a week, I'll take, you know, two or three days off of work and then use that time to then spend time with my kids. And so it's, it's not an easy, you know, nine to five. And I spend time with my kids afterwards. Um, there's times when I'm busy, I'm away, but then I, I use other time to make up for that, to either travel with my kid or, or to spend more time with them at home. Um, when I'm able to do that. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, I always struggle with, with, with asking for help. And I still do. I, it's very hard for me to to ask anyone for help. It's, it's a thing that my husband always points out at me because he's the opposite. He'll ask anybody for help. Um, but I've learned that in, in raising children that it really takes a community and, um, and it, it just sounds so cliche, but I realize, like, you know, when I'm not able to spend time with my kid and my kid is with his grandma, that is time that, that they'll never have, you know, that they'll, that they will treasure forever. And so instead of expecting me to always be there for my kids, um, actually, no, it's great for my son to be taught by, you know, this amazing teacher and, and spend time with her. It's it's good for him to have this other community of friends or to be with our neighbors and to spend time with them. And so it really does take a community. I think all of us take different roles. And so understanding that that even though you have a responsibility to, to be a, a, a good mom, you don't have to shoulder all of that, that you can do it within community, I think is really important. Yeah. As well. You know, I, I think with work-life balance, um, first of all, there's no easy choices. You know, um, if you have a job that's very demanding and sometimes demanding outside of the nine to five hours that, uh, you know, some people might have a nine to five job that they can leave behind, but a lot of people don't. And um, so if you have that kind of job, you ultimately have to set some boundaries and make some choices. And if you don't do that, um, you'll find yourself getting into trouble, you know, and I can remember a time when World Vision was having this very important global meeting and I was the CEO of the biggest office in the whole World Vision global network. And uh, it was actually critical that I be there. You know, at least people felt it was critical that I be there. And it was my daughter's high school graduation. And I, I basically made the decision to say, you know what? I'm not going to that meeting. I'm going to my daughter's graduation and I will send somebody else who will represent us very well. You know, I'm not the only person that can represent World Vision United States at that meeting. And there are people that can do that just as well as I can. And um, and I made that decision. Um, there's another anecdote that's kind of funny. I put it in my book uh, when I was this uh, chief operating officer at Lenox, China, uh, back in the day. Um, uh, it was Halloween day and uh, I had five little kids at home all excited about going out trick-or-treating that night. And I promised my wife and my kids, I'll be home. We'll all go out together. We're, we're going to have fun. And the CEO, my boss called a big important meeting that day uh, to determine whether we're going to close a factory down. So very important decision. And we, we went into the boardroom with like 25 of the most senior people at Lenox with the CEO presiding and the clock kept going and going and it was five o'clock, it was 5.30, finally it was six o'clock at night. And I'm thinking, I gotta get home for Halloween. And so I, I literally raised my hand in the meeting 
And uh, the CEO kind of looked startled and he said, Rich, you know, did you have something you needed to say? And I said, Jim, I said, today's Halloween. And I promised my five little kids I would be home to take them out trick or treating. So I have to leave the meeting now. Would you excuse me? And uh, and I'll be in first thing in the morning, uh, bright and early, and you can brief me. But I just have to go right now. And you could have heard a pin drop in that room because the other 25 senior leaders were certain that they had just watched one of their own commit career suicide. You know, like, how would you dare say that to the CEO that you're going to go home and trick or treat with your children instead of being at this important meeting? And so there was a silence. And then the CEO looked at me and he said, why, you know, I don't have little kids at home anymore. I'd totally forgotten today was Halloween. Rich, you need to go be with your family. You go ahead and I'll, I'll bring you up to date in the morning. I said, thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate it. And I left the meeting. And, uh, but the other 25 leaders that were there who also had children at home, not one of them made a peep. And the meeting went on for another two, two and a half hours, I think. But, you know, I had made that choice long before that Halloween. I had made that choice years before when I promised my wife that I was never going to let my career destroy or take precedence over our family. And now sometimes there were a lot of times when, you know, you didn't have choices and you, but anyways, I'm not, my point is, I think you, you need to kind of make those decisions before the crisis comes um, and, and lay down some principles and some boundaries for yourself. The other thing I encourage leaders is as a leader, your responsibility is to help the people on your team manage their own work-life balance. Your job is not to make their work-life balance worse. Your job is to help them manage it. And so I encourage people to speak to your boss. You might be surprised, like my CEO at Lennox said, gee, you should be home with your family. You go ahead. Speak to your boss. Say that you've got a challenge or an issue. And are there some accommodations that he or she could make that would allow you to be able to carry out your responsibilities outside the workplace? And you might be surprised at how understanding your supervisor or boss would be if you bring it up. But you have to be bold enough to bring it up. Yeah, and I would say, I think, especially with the pandemic, I think it's it's opened up new possibilities of thinking of what, you know, that balance could look like. And especially for a lot of parents that have been home with their kids during the pandemic and have worked this whole time with children running around, um, I think there is time, you know, to spend with your kids. And, and you're right. I think, you know, there are going to be situations we're put into where we have to choose sometimes between being with our family or, or being at work. And I think you bring up a, a, a good point, which is when you have a good team around you, you can leave and oftentimes, you know, spend time with your family because the time with your family, you are irreplaceable as, as a father, as a mother, um, as an auntie or uncle or, or grandmother, or grandpa. And so I think um, recognizing that and being able to make those really hard decisions is um, is is really important. I, I will say that I don't think I've always made you know the right decisions. I think especially for younger folks that feel like you cannot say no. Um, but the fact that you had the courage to, to bring it up and you're ready to face the consequences, I think um, you know it speaks a lot to your courage. But yeah. I think you know it's courage that we can learn from as well. Well, Jenny, uh, we've gone on quite a while, and I just want to finish with one thing. I I want to I want to uh, read you a quote from. Uh, my leadership book, Lead Like It Matters to God. And I just want you to react to that quote as a leader. And we've talked about some of these issues today, but you can just comment on the quote, react to it, disagree with it if you want, or add an additional thought. And here's the quote. 
It's not enough for a leader just to define reality and help determine a way forward. He or she must totally own the vision of a better future. A new vision doesn't become a reality because the leader sends it out in an email to everyone. A leader needs to visibly embody the vision, to eat, sleep, and drink the new vision day in and day out in full view of the organization. Thoughts? I couldn't agree more. I think one of the common um, uh, sayings I've I've come to really embrace as a as a leader and a follower of Jesus is to say that um, Christ can't work through us unless he works first works within us. And it's this idea that the, the fruit that we manifest is an extension of our character and our integrity and our and our faithfulness to Christ. And so as much as as you were saying, we can accomplish these things and, and produce fruit. Um, I think unless it's connected to the vine of Jesus Christ and, and also um, is is being born out of our commitment to him, um, both in our character and our witness. And I think, you know, it's 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 rotten fruit. And so um, I think the work of leadership always has to start with us first. And then any good good work that we're going to have as an extension of that um, comes as an extension of who we are. And so. Um, I think, you know, soul care, self-care um, is is important, but but at the same time, I think us acknowledging our, our shortcomings um, as leaders and, and seeking to collaborate with others um, in, in uh, teamwork and, and and the spirit of unity is, is very important as well. Well, Jenny, that's a good place to leave the conversation. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. And uh, I certainly wish you well in uh, your uphill fight to support refugees and refugee resettlement and uh you'll be in my prayers thank you thank you so much rich i really enjoyed this conversation so thank you thanks for joining rich stearns today on the podcast and check out his new book lead like it matters to god values driven leadership in a success driven world In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.